All right. Well, church, it's an honor to be with you today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter, um, chapter 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verse 8 and 9 today. Um, if this is your first time, we're glad you're here. We, as a church, typically, when the time comes for us to preach during the service, we go verse by verse through the Bible. And right, well, right now, we're in the book of First Peter. Peter is writing a letter to a group of persecuted Christians, and he's writing to encourage them in their faith. Now, last week, if you missed it, Peter makes kind of an f- incredible statement. He, he says that you and I can jump for joy when we encounter various trials, and he actually uses that language. You can jump for joy when you're going through suffering and you're going through trials for this reason. He says, because trials better than anything else Reveal to us whether or not our faith in Jesus is actually genuine. It's entirely possible, the scriptures tell us, for us to have a kind of belief in God that doesn't lead to salvation. And so he talks about how trials will be the thing that reveals to us whether or not we have a real, genuine faith in Christ or not. And then he says that if if we're found on the other side of that trial to actually have a real and genuine faith in Jesus, that that's more valuable than gold. It's the most valuable thing that a human being can possess, and it's for this reason, because that will result, that genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. The day that Jesus comes back, if you're standing there with a real faith that stood the test of time and trials, it's to be found in in praise and honor and glory. Now, here's what Peter's going to do today in verses 8 and verse 9 is he's gonna tell us what this faith in Jesus, what this genuine faith in Jesus actually looks like in us. He's he's gonna give us three things. He's gonna say it looks like this, genuine faith is gonna look like this, and genuine faith is gonna look like this. That, That as you're going through the storms and the trials of life, and when you're standing on the other side, this is actually what genuine faith in Jesus will show up and look like in you. And so what I want you and I to do today is that you hear these three things, I want you to simply ask yourself the question, whether you're going through a trial right now or whether you're not going through a trial, is do I see these characteristics of genuine belief and faith in Jesus in my life? That's what I want you to do. So let's read this together. We'll start in verse six, where we left off last week, and then we'll jump into eight and go through those three things and we'll be done. So verse six, he says, Peter says, in this you rejoice, and that's that jump for joy, the original language there. He goes, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse eight, because here's the three characteristics of genuine faith. This is what faith's gonna look like. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then verse nine, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he's saying, so genuine faith looks like this. He gives three things and he's saying, here's the result. Here's gonna be the outcome of your genuine faith. It's the salvation of your soul at the revelation of Jesus. You're going to heaven. So let's look at that again, verse eight. Let's look at the first aspect of genuine faith. Peter says, this is gonna show up. This is what your faith in Jesus is gonna look like. Number one, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though, though you guys have never seen Jesus with your own eyes, you love him. And so if you're right, taking notes, the first aspect, Peter says, the scripture says, of genuine, real faith in Jesus that's more valuable than gold is that you love Jesus. Now, when you hear that, that sounds pretty simple. But we have to be careful as Americans because our understanding of what the word love means is often radically different than the way that the scripture defines love. You gotta be very, very careful. So for most of us, when we hear that word, when we hear the word love, what kind of instantly comes to our brains? We think about the emotional aspects of love where we feel about, <clears throat> rather we think about the affectionate feelings that we feel towards something or someone. And we, we call that, that's love. Well, here's the thing. There's a Greek word for that kind of love that the Bible uses it's a Greek word phileo, and remember that. And, and the word phileo, it means that basically you have warm and fuzzy feelings towards something or someone. For example, if you were to ask me the question, Matt, do you love soccer? I would say, no, I do not love soccer. There's no tackling in soccer. I don't love it. But if you were to ask me, do you love football? I would say, yes, I love football. Football's the greatest sport that's ever been invented. And what I'm saying there is that I'm, I'm basically using the word phileo. It's, 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 uh, it's the way that you feel affectionately towards something. Now, here's the thing. When Peter writes these people and he says, hey, genuine faith in Jesus means that you love Jesus that's not what he's talking about. He doesn't use the word phileo. You gotta be careful too, because as Americans, when we hear the word love, a lot of times we think uh, about love in terms of romantic feelings. Like when, when, you are, when, a, when a woman is, has, is in a relationship with a guy and she's talking about the progression of their relationship, how does she always describe it? She'll say this, we, we, you know, we dated, um, or rather we met, and then we dated, and then she'll say something like, then we fell in love. Now what in the world does that even mean? We fell in love. Well, to understand what that means when somebody says they fall in love with somebody, here's what you need to do. You need to watch The Bachelor. That's how you know what that means when somebody says they fall in love with somebody. And by the way, you should not watch The Bachelor, and here's why. <clears throat> because it is from the devil, all right? That's, that is like just the short version of why you shouldn't watch The Bachelor. But what's the thing? Check this out. <clears throat> in the dating process of the show that's from the pit of hell, when, in the dating process of The Bachelor, like how do you know how do you know when these people's relationship with the bachelor and you know the eight women he's dating at the time, like how do you know when that relationship has kind of gone to the next level? It's when somebody, when the girl looks at the bachelor and says, I love you. That, that's when it's gone to the whole next level. That's when you know it's real. And I know that that, that that dude just made out with another girl in a hot tub the night before, but hey, she said, I love you, right? And then that's how you know that this thing's for real. Now, what, what, what are they saying when they say, I love you in that moment? What they're saying is, is that my feelings towards you have moved beyond friendship, and now I have a genuine feeling of affection towards you. And so when Peter writes these people and he says, hey, here's the first thing that you, you need to know, that genuine faith in Jesus means you love Jesus, we have to be careful. Because there's not too many people, hopefully, in here that cannot raise their hand and be like, well, check, I got that. You know, I'm crazy about Jesus. I love Jesus. 
I have, Jesus is great. You know, I'm, I love Jesus, but that's not really what he's saying. When he says genuine faith means you love him, <coughs> excuse me, he doesn't use the word phileo. He's not talking about the emotional feelings that you have, the emotional feelings of affection you have towards Jesus. He actually uses the word agape, which you've probably heard before. Now hear this. Agape is another word for love. It's translated love in English. But it means this. It means laying down your life for somebody. The word agape means to give up your rights for another person. And so when Peter says genuine faith means that you love Jesus, he's not talking about a feeling. He's talking about an action. He's talking about an action. And I guarantee you, where he learned the distinction between love being a feeling and love being an action was in a conversation he actually had with Jesus after the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Now, let me give you the context here. Um, Jesus is risen from the grave, and you know, the night that uh, Jesus was, or rather, the night before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times he's like, I don't even know the guy. Jesus saw this happen, Peter's horrified, and so even after Jesus rose from the grave, Peter's feeling all this guilt and all this shame, and even though Jesus appears to Peter and Peter sees him, he can't get over the shame, and so he takes off, and the scripture says he goes fishing, which is what Peter does. Peter was a fisherman, so he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of the disciples go with him. They're out on the Sea of Galilee, and um, John's with them, and the Bible says that when the sun was rising up over the mountains there, and if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you see that picture in your mind. You've got the shore, the mountains are behind that. They're out on the water. They see the sun coming up, coming up, and John sees Jesus on the beach. Jesus has left Jerusalem, come down the, the mountain there on the road to Jericho, comes to the, the Sea of Galilee, meets him on the beach. John says, there's Jesus. Peter realizes that even though I've run away from Jesus, Jesus is coming after me. So Peter flings himself into the water and swims all the way back to the beach. And then when, when Peter gets there, Jesus is cooking breakfast. And then they have this conversation. I want to just read to you a couple lines here from this conversation. In John 21, 15, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he at, you know, they eat breakfast together, and then Jesus looks at Peter and asks him a question. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, do you love me more than these? For years and years and years, I, I, I've studied, what is he, why does he say more than these? I think he's talking about the fish, honestly. I, I think he's like, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these fish? I know, because you left me to go fishing. I think that's what he means. But the point is, is he asked him the question, do you love me? And he uses the word agape there. He uses the word agape there. Peter, he's asking him the question, basically, are you willing to lay down your life for me? Peter, are you willing to give up your rights for me? Or he's not asking him how he feels about him. He's like, are you, are you willing to take up your cross and follow me all the days of your life? And I want you to watch what Peter says. <clears throat> he says, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. What's fascinating is that when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he uses the word phileo. Jesus said, hey, Peter, are you willing to lay down your life for me? Are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to give up your rights for me? And Peter goes, you know I, I'm crazy about you, Jesus. You know that. You know I'm your boy. You know I like you. Basically, you know I have these feelings for you, Jesus. I, I love you. You're the man. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. And then you look what he says. He says, and he said to him, feed my lambs. 
He's like, hey, if you love me, there is something, Peter, I need you to do. I need you to feed my sheep. And that same interaction happens three times where Jesus asks him the question, do you agape me, Peter? Do you love me? Are you gonna lay down your life for me? Are you gonna take up your cross for me? And three times Peter says, yes, like, yeah, man, I love you, phileo. He uses the word phileo. And each time Jesus says, I need you to do something for me. I need you to feed my sheep. And this is what Jesus is talking about. In John chapter 14, verse 15, and don't turn there, but I just want you to listen. It's a very simple statement by Jesus. In John 14, 15, Jesus says this, if you love me, okay? That word's agape, same word Peter uses. If you love me. Here's what it's gonna look like if you love Jesus. We're all about to find out whether or not we have that first aspect of genuine faith in our lives right now. He says, if you love me, what? You'll sing songs to me. You'll get chill bumps when Aaron's singing. You know, you, you, um, you cry at come thy fount. He says, if you agape me, you will keep my commandments. He says, this is what loving me looks like, is that you do what it is that I'm asking you to do. And here's the thing, guys, the, the difference between those kind of loves is critical that we get to the bottom of those in our lives. Um, there's years ago, um, 15 years ago, long time ago, <clears throat> there were a couple of guys that were young. They had gotten divorced about the same time. One's wife had divorced him. It wasn't really his fault. Um, the other wife had divorced him. It was his fault. And they both came to us about the same time for counseling. And here's what we asked these guys. We're like, okay, first of all, we wanna make sure that you, are, you personally are getting right with Jesus, that your heart's getting healed, that you're getting in a good place with the Lord. And so what we asked of them is that they continue to go through counseling separately. They continue to go through counseling, um, that they serve the church faithfully, um, that they just serve the body of Christ We asked them that they get in a missional community. We wanted to get them in a small group where they're studying the word of God and when they're walking in biblical community together so that people could keep them accountable and love them and support them during this trial in their life. And then we asked them to remain celibate. We asked them that they don't date, that they remain sexually pure during this time. And what was fascinating is after about six months, she saw the guy, by the way, the one that wasn't really his fault. There's always two sides of the story, but... From what we could tell, it wasn't really his fault. He's doing everything that we had kind of laid out in through the scripture, what we thought God was asking him to do. He was serving faithfully in the church. He had joined a missional community, gotten accountability in his life, and he was remaining celibate. He was remaining abstinent. He, he was remaining sexually pure during that time. And this other guy, about six months later, he's still going to church. Um, he's doing a few things, everything looks good, but then he confesses to us that he'd actually started dating a girl and was in a premarital sexual relationship with her. Okay, now here's the point of what I'm trying to say there. Both of these guys had gone through the storm and the trial of divorce. But, but, but six months after the storm had passed, <clears throat> if you would have come up to both of these guys and asked them this question, do you love Jesus. Both of them would have emphatically said, yes, I love Jesus. But biblically speaking, biblically speaking, one of them loved the Lord and one of them did 
not. Why? Why? Because while both of them had affectionate feelings for Christ, only one of them was actually doing what it is that Christ had asked him to do. Okay, and that's a critical distinction, guys. It's an eternal distinction. That genuine love for Jesus is not just defined by how you feel about him. And how you feel about him is important. I would worry about you if you say you're a believer, but that you didn't have affectionate feelings toward Jesus. We're supposed to love the Lord with our heart and our soul, and so that's all important. But genuine love for Jesus, according to what Peter here is saying, is this, is that you are willing to agape him. Lay down your life for him, not die, lay down your life for him. That you're willing to lay down your rights and to do what it is that he says for you to do. And so the first aspect of genuine faith is this, Peter says in 1.8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. All right, now here's the second one. <clears throat> Let's read it together. 1.8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Okay, now that's the second aspect or defining characteristic of genuine faith. He says, when, after a trial, storm blows into your life, if this thing is still standing there, that's one of the ways you know you had a genuine faith, not a counterfeit faith, is if you believe in him. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. What that does not mean is that you have an intellectual belief in the existence of God. That's not what he's saying there. That's not the language. Um, there are millions of people out there in the world that have an intellectual belief in the existence of God but are not going to heaven when they die. There, there are many people out there that would even say that they have a cognitive understanding that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins but do not have a saving, a soul-saving faith in the way that the scripture is describing it here. And here is the reason. Because when Peter says that you've not seen him with your eyes, you believe in him, he's not saying that although you've never had physical evidence, you still believe in his existence. That's not what the language says. He says, though you have never seen him with your eyes, you believe in him. That word belief right there is Greek word pisteus. It means trust. It means faith. Though you've never seen Jesus, you trust Jesus. Though you've never actually seen the physical evidence with your eyes, you are trusting your life into the person of Jesus. That's what he says and that's what he means by that. And by the way, that's exactly the same phrase that Jesus uses in the most beloved, most famous verse in history, John 3, 16. Uh, John 3, 16, Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish or die, but have eternal life. That's the exact same phrase that Peter uses. Jesus is not saying, hey, God loved the world so much, he sent Jesus, and if you believe that he came in his existence, then you're gonna go to heaven when you die. He's saying that God so loved the world that he sent his son, and that whoever believes into Jesus Whoever trusts their eternities and their lives into the person of Jesus and what he does, that's the one who will inherit eternal life. It means that you trust into him what he's done and what he said. A great story that kind of illustrates that, to paint a picture of it in our minds, is the story of the Roman centurion. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This guy is... Um, Jesus, rather, is walking along. He's got his disciples with him. And this Roman soldier, they called him a centurion, means he was in charge of 100 soldiers, walks up to Jesus. 
And he's seen that Jesus has healed people. And he says, Jesus, my servant is sick and he's dying. And I wanted to see, Jesus, if you would heal him. And Jesus looks back at the centurion and says this. He says, sure, show me where your servant is. Take me to him and I'll heal him. And the Roman centurion said something that stopped Jesus in his tracks. The Roman soldier looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, you don't have to go where my servant is. All you have to do is say the word and I know it will happen. And when that guy said that, Jesus was walking along, that guy said that, Jesus stops and turns around and looks at him. And the scripture says that when he said that, Jesus marveled. It's basically literally translated kind of into, you know, 2017 English, that statement blew Jesus' mind, made his jaw drop. And, P, and, and Jesus kind of stops and gets everybody around's attention and says, hey, did y'all hear what that guy just said? He stops. Did y'all hear what this dude just said? Jesus didn't say, dude, did y'all hear what this guy said? He says, I have not seen faith I have not seen trust. He uses the Greek word pisteos. I have not seen trust like that in all of Israel. All the guy said is, Jesus, you don't have to go there, man. All you gotta do is just say it. I know it's gonna happen. I believe I'm trusting into you enough that I'm just, if you say it, I believe it. I'm trusting my life. I'm trusting the outcome of my servant into your word. That, church, is belief. That is faith. And guys, this is so critical that you see the distinction between the two. He's not saying, hey, if you just kind of believe in your mind that God exists, but that you are trusting into him, that's genuine faith. It's important. And here's the reason. I want you to hear this real carefully. Because one of the first things that I've seen in people that at least initially reveal that they don't have a genuine faith in Christ when a trial hits their life is they stop trusting what God says is best for their life. It's like one of the first things you see. They stop trusting what God says as best for their life. Um, you see, the, you see the, the couple that they're dating. Um, maybe they're in high school, maybe they're in college, maybe they're young professionals, whatever. Um, and and, and they, they fall in love. Um, non-biblically speaking, and, and, it, and it gets really, really hard to stay sexually pure. And so they come to us for counseling. And you sit them down and you open up the Bible and you say, okay, this is what God says about sex. And, and this is the reason that the scripture says that God <coughs> created sex. He, he created sex for this purpose, for there to be one context for sex to be experienced. And it's the context of a man and woman who have entered into a covenant relationship of marriage. And he created sex for that one context so that these two people can express their love for one another and and it's a picture, it's a picture of Christ's unbreakable covenant love with his bride, the church. 
And so that's why sex before marriage is wrong according to the scripture. And that's why we need to remain pure until we enter into that one context because that's what glorifies God. That's what God says is best for us. And then inevitably, they will look back at you and go, yeah, I I know that that's what the scripture says, but. I know what the scripture says, but. I mean, in in God, the one that created all these desires in me, and and, and, hey, Matt, we we love each other. Phileo, we love each other. And does God really, does it really mean, is that really what he's saying, that he wants us to wait? I don't know if you've noticed, Matt, of, of everything else, that's, you know, all the, uh, the world's definition of sex and what everybody's doing, but is that really what God wants for us? Is that really what God says? And then you find out that they have not followed what God says. And see, the, the thing is, is that the storm came into their lives and they stopped trusting the Lord. The storm of temptation came into their life and the temptation, the trial, the storm caused them to stop believing in him. They're like, God, I don't know if what you're saying, I don't know if I believe what you're saying is best for my life. I've seen the the young married couple, they're in their 20s, they just got married. And six, seven, eight months into it, they come to us, or the wife comes to us, or the husband, whatever, I've seen both, and, and they say, you know what, I, the, our marriage is not working out. It's not everything I thought it was gonna be. And it's, it's really, really hard, and, and I'm not sure if I love this person anymore, and then they use that word phileo again, which, by the way, marriage is not about, but anyway, that's another sermon uh, for another time. I don't know if I love this person anymore. What they're saying is, I don't know if I feel these feelings for this person anymore. And so what I'll do is I'll sit down with them and I'll, I'll open up the Bible and I'll say, let's talk about why, what marriage is. Let's talk about why God created marriage. Let's talk about why we get married. Let's, go, let's talk about why God thought this thing up in the first place. And you talk about how what marriage is, when the two, when the two of you came together and you, and you said, I do, at the altar, And then on your wedding nights, you consummated that marriage physically. Here's what happened. That God created that. He he thought that up. He he designed that to be a picture, uh, again, of his unbreakable love between his bride and him, the church. And so I explained to them that when you stood at the altar, you entered into a covenant with God. And a covenant is not like a contract. Contracts are meant to be broken. A covenant is something that the two of you entered into with the Lord. And so what the Bible tells us is that when you entered into the covenant with God, he took the two of you and he made you one flesh. That something supernatural occurred at the altar. And that is why Jesus said that, listen, what God joined together, you do not ever break apart. Let no man ever separate what God has joined together. And then inevitably the spouse will say, but Matt, I know that's what God said, but doesn't God want me to be happy? Which is, by the way, the least favorite thing I ever hear in counseling, so don't ever say that to me in counseling. Um, Do you mean, Matt, that God really wants me to stay with this person that I don't love for the rest of my life? And then two months goes by and and they're divorced. In other words, what this person is saying is, I don't know if I believe anymore 
that what God says is best for my life. You see that? The storm comes in, they stop believing him. And guys, I could just go on and on and on and give examples in all aspects of life. When a storm comes, a trial comes and hits a person hard and they, you know, the storm of life makes it difficult to trust and believe into God. And so the person stops trusting and believing in God. And by the way, I don't know if this hits you when I was talking about this, but do you remember the very first lie that Satan ever gave us? Do you remember what the first deception Satan ever laid on us? was he came to Adam and Eve and said I know that's what God said but did God really say that that's what you're supposed to do the sin of the garden was not eating an apple the sin of the garden was not believing God and Peter writes to these people and says hey I just by the way I want you to know what genuine faith is going to look like genuine faith means you love Jesus and genuine faith means you trust into him. Last thing here, 1 Peter 1 8. <clears throat> he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe into him. And watch the last part, it's really cool. He says, And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's saying, you're going through trials, it stinks, it's hard, but that's okay. Because all that trial's doing, it's testing whether or not you have a real faith. And real faith um, is more valuable than gold because when Jesus comes back, real genuine faith is gonna result in praise and glory and honor when he comes back. And here's what it looks like, you love God, you believe in him, and the last thing he says, this is what genuine faith looks like when it shows up in somebody, is that they have an inexpressible joy, a joy inexpressible, that is full of glory. Now that word inexpressible joy there, it is what it, it sounds like. It just means that you have a joy inside of you that even in a trial you can't explain. It means that your life's falling apart but if you are a truly believer that there's gonna be an eye in that storm that causes a joy that you can't quite express, that you can't put your finger on. It's a joy inexpressible. I'm gonna tell you something, folks. When Christians' lives fall apart, when Christians' lives fall apart, they don't always immediately have a joy inexpressible, but they inevitably have a joy inexpressible. I've seen it a thousand times. When a, when a, when, when a person who has the Holy Spirit of God inside of them and their life falls apart, you always see in, in them eventually a joy that, that they just like, man, it's in there and I, God just did it. It's the only explanation I have. And so he says, a joy inexpressible, and the last thing he says, and full of glory, and full of glory. Genuine faith means that in the midst of a trial, you have an inexpressible joy that's full of glory. What does that mean? Well, Peter uses the word glory in the sentence before. He says, you're gonna receive glory at the revelation of Jesus. He's gonna, and we talked about last week, not quite sure what that means, but it sounds cool. You're gonna receive glory when Jesus comes back, but then he uses a different word for glory here. It's a word that means you're gonna give glory. One of the defining, listen to this, and I'm done. One of the defining characteristics of genuine faith in Jesus is that when your life's falling apart, you're going through a trial, there is an inexpressible joy that you have, and even through the trial, you will glorify God. That God will be glorified through it. It's one of the marks of a Christian. 
and I, and I thought about what to do right here in this sermon, and I, I want to show you a quick video. It's a video of my friend Roger. Roger, where are you, buddy? Holler at me, buddy. There you go. I've been hanging out with Roger for 15 years. I love him. He is incredibly intelligent. He is a smart guy, has uh, cerebral palsy. And it's, this is a story, and he says better than I ever could what it looks like for a Christian to have an inexpressible joy full of glory. Watch this. Good job, darling. I, I know. Good job. You gonna rock this for me? This may be hot, so. Okay. do what a normal person take for granted. I struggle with the loneliness from time to time because I recognize that most politicians out is merely with a wife and Kids and sometimes I wonder. God has been gracious enough to let me have come early, and that really helped out my loneliness. When I struggle with loneliness. I remember and said to myself that Jesus is better. That's basically what gets me to every day. I go to church on my 
own every Sunday in my electric wheelchair. I, I really enjoy that because I am a teacher at the 11th service. My favorite part is seeing all kind of faces. That is such a job because I recognize that the church is made up of all kinds of people. I don't have to listen to live that since I am disabled and not important. God made me who I am, and I was born with super party, not because of an accident, but on purpose. When I take a on purpose, I say, oh man, how can I not worship God because he loves me that much to give me free peace so I can encourage the old body of the church and non-believers. It actually brings me to tears and I am very humble because not everybody gives the gift of realizing that God gave me this life to not waste it but lose it. Let's just keep standing, and I'll say this. I think that may be what God's talking about, a joy inexpressible, full of glory. Amen? But here's the thing. As amazing as Roger's story is, it's the call on all of our lives. I was so convicted when I watched that because I can't tell you how many times that I freak out over something that's not a thousandth of what he's going through. So I think right now would be just an amazing time for us to just ask the Lord to give us a perspective to do a great work in our hearts because none of this comes through our power right that we would be people that love God not just come in here and feel things for him and then go on with our lives and do whatever we want to do but we would love him that we walk up the store feed his sheep lay down our lives lay down our rights for him 
that we would be people that believe in him. We're a young congregation, guys. The storms of life are going to come. The difficulties of life are going to come. Believe Jesus. I'm telling you, he will never disappoint you. He'll never disappoint you. And ask him to let us be a people that have a joy that is inexpressible, that's full of glory so that the world will see us as we suffer and see us as we walk through trials. And they'll ask the question, where in the world is that coming from? So let's ask him to do that. Let's pray. Take just a second. Ask him to do that work in you. there's going to come a day in every person here where suffering and trials and storms that are beyond our ability and our strength are going to hit us. And Father God, I ask you for every person that's standing here today that we would be a people that no matter what, we love you and we trust you and that we have a joy in the midst of that suffering that glorifies you. And I ask that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand together.